It was fun studying this passage this week and um, kind of revisiting it. I've looked at it before, and I just kind of decided to come at it in a fresh new look and read it and and read some different perspectives on it. I have commentaries I pull off the shelf, and sometimes I look a little bit of Internet stuff, see what I find. I have a a preaching website by Christianity Today called Preaching Today that we subscribe to, and I, I I don't always look at that when I'm preaching, but sometimes I look just to see if there's a little help with illustrations, and sometimes it's just this, you put the passage in and it pops up, and I plugged in this passage and there were several pages of illustrations that were tied to this one because it's such a, a popular theme of, uh, of kind of walking our talk in a sense of, uh, of putting our faith into action. So I was scrolling down and you see that the, you see the, the, the titles, they give a title to each of the illustrations and I kind of read them and decide whether to click through or not and I was really surprised when I, one popped up that caught my eye and the title of it was Church Hangs Artificial Bells. A church in Naperville, Illinois, in the western suburb of Chicago, is boasting new bells in their belfry. This is from about 15 years ago, by the way. Since the church was built two decades ago, the congregation has held off on its plans to hang bells in a large open space above the sanctuary. Due to limited funds, the congregation suggested mounting a cross in the space or a series of liturgical banners that could be hung according to the season of the church year. I didn't know that. That's kind of cool. In conjunction with the church's 25th anniversary, uh, which was about 15 years ago, the church finally found the means to spring for three bells to fill the vacant hole. They are beautiful. However, you'll never hear these bells peal on Sunday mornings or any other day of the week for that matter. And it doesn't have to do with the city ordinances or complaining neighbors opposed to bells playing hymns. It has to do with the fact that the bells aren't real. They don't have clappers. Although they look authentic, they are made of resin. I know a church in Aprilville that has them too, but I thought they were made of styrofoam, so it must be another church. But anyway... um, and I thank Tom McRoberts for putting those bells up there. I think they're cool. But anyway, uh, that, that, that sort of surprised me to read that. And, 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 and in this preaching website, um, I'll let you know where the church is if you're still curious which one it is. But um, um, actually, it's our church. For those who are new to us, they are fake. Um, but they help identify us. As I say, the name of our church is Naperville Covenant Church. If it weren't for the bells, you'd think it was a bank. That's our tagline. So... Um, this preaching website has uh, categories of things that it fits in, depending on what you're preaching on. And these are the topics that this could fit in. Appearances, authenticity, falsehood, hypocrisy, and the last one is perception and reality. And I kind of landed on that perception and reality one. I, I thought of that. You know, the, the, the bells don't really bother me. And to be honest, we're sort of evaluating them as we look at renovating the church. That bell tower actually is a little bit... Um, the structure's a little bit compromised, and we're going to have to do some major work on it if we keep it. So we're, you know... The bells are great, but we're, that, everything's up for grabs as we look at renovating the building. So when I read about perception reality, I do not really stress too much. I don't have time to stress about the bells. I'm more concerned with, with perception and reality here. <laughs> the perception of who I am as leader of this church and who I am as simply as a follower of Christ and what the reality is. And I'm more concerned with perception and reality here too. And this is not a judgmental finger pointing at you. It's us as a church family, the perception of us as a church on this corner, what do we stand for? And when we say what we stand for, does the life we live play that out? I'm much more concerned about that than our bells. Does who I say and who I am, who I claim to be, measure up with what we really do and how we act? Or in terms of this summer's theme of all you need is love, does my love, does our love really show in our actions, not just in once in a while programming, It shows there, but does it show in our actions? Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and our strength. 
and to love neighbor as self. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and then to love others. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, and it's recorded by Matthew in chapter 5, verse 16, where he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and therefore glorify God in heaven. It's a light that shines when we act out our faith and people see the good deeds, they see the good actions, and they're drawn to Christ through that. Later, the Apostle John, as he was learning and teaching how to live out this genuine faith, said in the, first, the third chapter of his first letter, 1 John 3.17, he says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Oof. We could speak of neighbor love, but it doesn't mean anything unless we're acting in love. And then James, in today's reading, has much the same message. And it comes as a call to living out our faith. To living out our faith, to put our love into action, to put our faith into action, adding reality to perception. I'm okay with fake bells, but I'm not okay with fake faith. And so today as we dig into this passage just a little bit, we say this, as we move from simply saying we love others to putting our neighbor love into practice, we're reminded that uh, that authentic love in action flows from a genuine living faith that seeks to follow Jesus. Not just one that says, I believe, but one that says, I follow. Not just one that says, I accepted Jesus, although that's good, but it says, I also follow Jesus. A genuine love in action will come from that kind of relationship. So we're going to look a little bit at perception and reality, and I'm going to call it here profession and practice, what we profess and what we practice. And first of all, I want to look at profession and practice and look a little bit at what James is talking about here and compare it to what the Apostle Paul. We're going to do a little bit of a biblical theological work here to see how this whole faith and works thing is, because Paul says we're saved by faith alone without works, and James says you need works, and so we'll, we'll figure that out. In case you've been wondering for years how to answer that, I, have, I totally got it. Well, at least I'll share it with you and we'll see where we stand, right? But secondly, after that, uh, we'll look at profession and practice and what the response from our own lives would be uh, and ought to be and needs to be. For centuries, James' words about faith being dead without deeds have been compared and contrasted to the Apostle Paul's words about salvation coming by grace through faith alone not as a result of good deeds. And some have seen it as contradictory. Even Martin Luther himself struggled with the book of James and called it a right strai, strai, which is not a word we use a lot, but a right strai epistle. He was not, he was a little skeptical of what James taught here. So we need a little bit better understanding. So we're going to look a little bit at this. First of all, defining what is meant here by, by faith. The word, the Greek word is pistis, which is, means a, a firm conviction or a firm persuasion, or it means to, to trust. And in the verb form, it means to trust or actually to believe. The word believe is from the same root as the word for faith in the Greek language. So when we speak of faith, it means not just of a, of a, a belief in our head, but it's a trusting God. It's trusting in Christ for salvation. And all through Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this phrase, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. It even comes in an obscure little prophet Habakkuk. The word comes that the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther actually wrestled with this himself, and he, in part of his dealing with, a, in his correction to the corruption in the church, was to, to add the word alone. And so he was known as saying, sola fide, faith alone. Sola fide. Paul here is speaking of that faith, of recognizing salvation and gift. When Paul speaks of faith alone, he speaks of that trusting Christ for something that we cannot do on our own, receiving the gift of life, receiving salvation as a gift, and we can't do anything to earn it. 
Now, James, on the other hand, is using the word faith here more in terms of a profession of faith, of saying a creed, or of simply saying, I believe in God. A majority of Americans today would say, I believe in God. The sentence would continue with, and this is what I think he or she or they are like. (laughs) It's easy to say, I believe God. In God, or even to say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of faith. And that's the kind of faith that James is talking about here. The faith he speaks of is more of a, of a mental assent or, a, a, or an intellectual belief without any kind of connection uh, to the heart and to the action. He makes that clear in verse 19 of today's passage where he says, you believe that there is one God. And Dana, you did a great job reading it. I love the way you read it. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So simply believing in God isn't enough, is it? The enemies of God believe in God too. (laughs) So it's got to be more than that. A genuine faith will have the evidence of works and deeds, and that's the point really here that James is trying to make. And so let's look a little bit at deeds. When the Apostle Paul speaks of deeds, or he actually more often uses the word works, he's referring then to those human efforts. He's referring to the, the human striving of, of trying to please God, of being little humans who are trying to appease or please or impress or earn some kind of favor from this holy, holy God. And that's why Paul says there's no way that any of our efforts at good deeds could ever appease God or please him or match up to his incredibly high standard of righteousness. It's an effort to try to attain salvation of that simple phrase of, I'm going, I know I'm going to heaven because I led a good life. But that's not the assurance of salvation, of living a good life. We do not earn it. Paul also speaks of human deeds as dark deeds, those that arise out of our sin and selfishness in the ways that we do self-serving things. Those are deeds too. And then as Paul outlines theology, he says that those are changed by Christ, and that's where we come uh, to James' usage of deeds. In other words, we take the deeds that are dark and self-focused, and Christ changes our hearts and so that our actions become more outward and more loving. And it's those are the deeds that James is talking about here. Not the works or the deeds that would save us, because they can't, but deeds that flow out of a life that is renewed by Jesus. If there are none of these deeds in someone, then it is questionable as to whether that person has genuine faith, perception and reality, profession and practice, styrofoam bells, bronze bells. Does it really do what it says it can do? The reconciliation of these two perspectives becomes clearest when we realize that James and Paul have a different starting place in in a sense in their argument. We need to define the starting point. Paul and James begin their arguments at different times in the Christian life. Paul begins at the very beginning of coming to faith the very first time. He begins at the very beginning insisting that no one can earn forgiveness or salvation from God. The first step must come from a free gift of grace. There's no way we can save ourselves. We can only accept the gift of forgiveness, which gives us life in Christ. So Paul's starting place is the very beginning that we come in faith and receive the free gift. James begins much later. He's now talking with the one who has made a profession of faith in Christ, saying, yeah, I I have Christ in my life, who claims to already be forgiven, and in this new relationship with God in Christ is growing there. Such a person, James says rightly, must now live a new life as a new creation, and it will show. The profession that I do believe will now be verified in the practice. 
profession and practice. Paul really ties them up together in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. These are some of the key words that we speak when we talk about salvation as a gift, but that he ends up concluding it with the right perspective on deeds. Verse 8, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Get that? Saved by faith, by grace, through faith alone. And we are created then to do the good works that God calls us to. Now, if we stopped right here in this message, there's two things that would happen. First of all, it would be a much shorter sermon, and some of you say, woohoo, but we wouldn't be done. So um, then we would have just sort of talked about describing this difference, and we would have had some wonderful head knowledge and said, yes, I believe what Pastor Scott said. But we need to dig down a little bit further. We need to bring it home to our own hearts and how we live out this faith and how we live out the love of Christ. So we want to look at profession and practice and the response in our own lives. Now, I really don't want to talk about politics today. Actually, I'm dying to, but I'm not going to. Um, But this whole business of profession and practice is one of the many lenses through which we can look at this year's truly, you just have to say it's really a bizarre election season, no matter how you feel about any of the candidates. All this talk about evangelical voters drives me crazy, because most of them don't represent me, who's an evangelical voter. We have one candidate who is a member of a Presbyterian church running against another member who's another candidate who's a member of of, of a Methodist church. Sounds good, right? And 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 then we have we have a a conservative evangelical running mate for one of them, and now we have a devout uh, Christ-following Catholic running as a running mate for the other one. We should be in good shape, shouldn't we? Oh, I can feel it rising in each of you, though. You know, (laughs) right? I tried not to read any of the editorial page today, but I just couldn't help it, you know. This stuff is just crazy. You couldn't make this up. And we feel it rising. He calls himself a... She calls herself a... You know, we, we can do that both ways. And both candidates are fair game for not living a profession, living in practice, up to the profession of what they say. And therefore, we feel that we can take it on ourselves and because we know that we can decide which one's a Christian and not, Right? Oops. <laughs> it's God's business, of course. But others have gotten drawn into this. I think Max Lucado, who was one of the most respected uh, evangelical preachers and speakers, I mean, his stuff is so good, it's all over greeting cards and plaques, Christian plaques for your wall, so it must be right, right? But Lucado has not been able to restrain himself and has spoken out uh, with great question about the profession of one of the candidates and his profession of faith. But I digress. <laughs> It's raised the question, but what we're talking about now is me and you. I'm talking about me and I'm talking about you if you choose to stay engaged at this point. What is the response in our life? Well, first of all, it's simply a matter of being alive in Christ. We talk about being alive in Christ, not just professing faith in Christ. Alive in Christ means that we've entered into a relationship. Alive in Christ means that we have given our life to him so that we can become empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that gradually those dark deeds, which Scripture speaks of, are gradually turned into good deeds. It doesn't happen overnight. We get yanked back to the dark side sometimes. 
It also means that as we're alive in Christ and we grow in him, gradually the, the, the need to do good turns into an internal desire to do good, not a should to do good, but an internal desire to live in ways that please God and serve others. To love others with the love of Christ. To not only accept Jesus, but to follow Jesus. So it's a matter, our response is a matter of tending to our own walk with Christ and if it's really living out in the way that we live or working itself out in the way that we live. We see it, we experience. We experience in the, uh, this love in the little things and in the large thing, in the little and the large. And as we... And when we speak of good deeds, we sometimes run to the big, once-in-a-while, well-planned efforts. We as a church could take great uh, pleasure in our good deeds. We, we have done good things at all the nursing care this summer. We are doing good things for Scott School. We are doing a good thing for Lise Vinette. And I don't mean to diminish for a second the good that is coming through that and then the relationships that are being built. But that's not, those are, the, those are the big things. There's the big things sometimes we on our own can rally for ourselves to finally make a relationship with a neighbor, uh, to fix a meal for somebody and get it over there. Those, are, those aren't huge things, but sometimes it's a big effort in our, our busy lives to do those things. But we don't just do those and then we're off the hook for the other good deeds. We might make a significant cash contribution to a worthy and godly cause, and that's a good thing. Our money very much expresses who we are. We cling to it, and when we let it go, we want to make sure that it's doing something good. And those are important things. Those are very important things. The large expressions are good. But it is also, perhaps especially, the way we live and conduct ourselves in relationship to those around us every day. Megan and I walk our dogs uh, almost every night around two blocks. If we're really tired, it's one block. Um, but usually it's two blocks. And, and generally it's a time for us to catch up with each other on the day. Sometimes we're, we're hashing out um, our, our, our speaking. So we've been, Megan is doing this keynote um, talk on, on Thursday night at Tranial. So we've been talking about some of that. And sometimes I'll share with her where I am with my message as it gets later in the week. And, and we talked, I brought this up just the other night. It was just a couple nights ago. We talked about this whole thing of all the way down to simply the way we perceive the world around us and analyze it and, and, and evaluate it. And will we let ourselves become drawn to the negative response and the critical response? Or will we see that as, as something in order to, to, to call us to what we might do to fix something or to, to care for another? We talked about the littlest things of how we actually think and process our thoughts and therefore act whether in love and out of faith or of selfish ways that just make ourselves feel good. And we wrestled with that for a while as we walked. And the dogs smelled where other dogs had been. But anyway, that's what they do. How we speak of others. How we, in this church, we talk about holy manners. Do we really give each other the benefit of the doubt or is it just on a list of holy manners? Do we really directly confront things? Do we really speak directly or is it a lot easier to tell somebody that I heard somebody say that this about somebody else? Are we really going to practice those holy manners of being ready to forgive? Are we going to really accept the fact that there are differences among us? Are we going to give one another the benefit of the doubt? When you have an opinion about something, perhaps this really annoyed me what they did, but perhaps this is what they meant. And to look at it that way, this is where love in action and faith in action really fleshes itself out, yes, in the large, but also in the little. The fruits of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, actually, we, we like to lift those out, and, and those kind of go on a plaque too. Right next to your Max Lucado plaque, you can put the fruits of the Spirit. But right before that is something you probably won't put on a plaque, and that's all the deeds of darkness that Christ, the Spirit changes. And so Paul lists all these really dark and nasty things, and, this, and the Spirit brings and then develops the fruit in our life. 
a life that's changed, a life that's being changed by Christ. And these fruits show in the large things, but they show especially in the little. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm going to read them again and think of each one, not in the large, but in the little in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's a sweet list, but it can be a convicting list as well. When we profess to know Jesus and these fruits are in short supply, reminds me of another story of perception and reality uh, that I just read this last week of a, a guy named Bill Hillman who's a, apparently a Chicago-based journalist. And he's actually an expert, a self-proclaimed, but he is an expert on the annual running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. You've heard about the running of the bulls and all those crazy people that chase bulls or let the bulls chase them. And the festival is a nine-day, um, described in this article, as a nine-day mix of partying and adrenaline chasing. <laughs> draws hundreds of thousands of people from around the world. Fifteen people have been killed in the bull run since the records began in 1911. Well, Hillman himself apparently co-authored a book with the subtitle, How to Survive the Bulls of Pamplona. 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 Yeah. But on July 3rd, two years ago, in 2014, just knowing about bull running, even knowing enough to write an instruction manual on bull running, was not enough. A 1,320-pound fighting bull named Brevito legged behind the pack just before entering the city's bull ring at the end of a rain-slicked run in the annual festival. At the opportune time, Brevito gored Hillman in the right thigh and a 35-year-old Spanish man in the chest. Both men recovered, but the co-author of Hillman's book told the New York Times, quote, we will probably need to update the book. (laughs) To which I say the truth hurts. <laughs> and in that case, the truth literally hurt, right? The truth hurts, and sometimes, hopefully, it motivates. It motivates the title change in that book. But in the reality of our own lives, the truth sometimes hurts in a deeper way that motivates us. It comes closer to home. And I read uh, this quote from author Donald Miller in his bestseller book from a few years back, Blue Like Jazz. Miller says this, The trouble with deep belief is that it costs something. <laughs> The trouble with deep belief is that it costs something, and there is something inside me, some selfish beast of a subtle thing that doesn't like the truth at all because it carries responsibility. And I actually believe these things, I have to do, if I actually believe these things, I have to do something about them. I used to say that I I believed it was important to tell people about Jesus, but I never did. My friend Andrew very kindly explained that if I do not introduce people to Jesus, then I do not believe Jesus is an important person. It doesn't matter what I say. Let me read that again. This is the part that hurt me. (laughs) I used to believe it was important to tell people about Jesus, but I never did. My friend Andrew very kindly explained that if I do not introduce people to Jesus, then I don't believe Jesus is an important person. It's the truth that hurts. The trouble with deep belief is that it costs us something. It's a deeper hit sometimes inside. And I was hit this week as I read one of the posts in Covenant Newswire that came through this week. It was on Wednesday. 
The title of it was Voices. What happens after this? Question mark. An open letter to colleagues. It was written by Leanne Younger, who is a pastor in inner city Pittsburgh. And she is co-planting and co-pastoring a team for City View Covenant Church. She's an African-American woman, and at the Great Lakes Conference annual meeting a year ago in 2015, uh, she was given the opportunity to make a presentation, and she asked for stories from many of her African-American sisters and brothers who were in work and part of the Covenant family. People shared their stories of loss and shared their stories of profiling and other kinds of things and some of the things that they have dealt with in our culture. And as a response, many of the colleagues there promised, made promises of, of help and support. Others were honest with her, but basically said, you know, there's not much I can do about this. And some even said, I would love to do more to help in the whole area of racial reconciliation, but I really don't have time in terms of the way my ministry is going now. She was careful about how she even worded this. It was not a demeaning, critical article. It was just the reality of, of, of what she's experiencing and what a lot of our colleagues are experiencing in this multi-ethnic setting in which we minister as ministers in the Evangelical Covenant Church. We, we want to live into this. We profess a belief in that the gospel is the answer to racial reconciliation. But sometimes when it comes down to it, we simply forget about it or don't have the time. And this truth hit deep inside me because I profess that. You hear me talk about it a lot. But I don't always act on it. There aren't the things that I'm doing. I'm not structuring my time. I'm not doing all the reading that I should be doing that I think I want to do. The stack of books grows higher and higher on the side of my desk. The books that address racial reconciliation are mixed in with the books about leadership and all the other things that seem so important. So I'm convicted. The truth hurts, but I'm, I'm not looking for sympathy or I'm not looking for a, that's okay, none of us are perfect. This is my issue. I, don't, I invite you to explore it with me, but there might be something else that God's convicting you about here as we speak of the truth. Or, what is the thing where God has troubled your spirit a little bit and said, this is not right. This is not right what's going on in my workplace. This is not right the way things are happening in my school or in this setting. This is not right the way this relationship is playing out that I know of. What is God calling me to do to be a person of love and a person of faith in the midst of it? My issue is struggling. There's several of them. I have a lot of issues. But my issue here is this issue of of racial reconciliation, what God is calling me to do in our multi-ethnic setting and right here in Naperville. What is yours? Where's the place that the truth hurts when we give it some time? And it's okay to hurt for a while. We don't have to wrap it all up in a neat bow. We don't have to feel good about it. We can't pass it off as that nobody's perfect. We've got to be troubled a little bit as individuals. But I think also it's a call to the church to be looking at these things together, and we are exploring them. I am, just, just to kind of wrap it up a little bit, I am, sometimes you've heard me talk about the difference between an attractional church and a missional church. We use the word missional a lot. We might use it too much. We might have overused it, I'll, I'll admit it. And sometimes we use missional to such an extent that uh, some might feel like, yeah, but what about, what about here? <laughs> and so we've talked about attractional being if a church does a lot of really cool things, it'll just kind of attract people in, where a missional church goes out to the community. I referred to that article about we're no longer a welcoming church, meaning we're going to be more of an inviting, going out there church. But as I continue, I, I, I am reading Barefoot Church, by the way. I told you two weeks ago I'd ordered it. I did. I got it. I'm reading it. I'm not done yet. Uh, but Brandon Hatmaker there, rather than using um, attractional missional, uses these two words, gathering and sending. And that made more sense to me. 
Because we are a church gathered. We do need to gather. We need to be together in times like this for worship. We need to gather uh, to learn together. We need to, to grow deeper in our, our, our roots of faith in Christ. But we also always need to be a sending church. And that's not just send missionaries far, far away. That's us sending into our community, into our relationships, back out to places where we live out our faith. But there's really kind of an, there's an energy and a wholeness that comes in both of those things, that we are gathered together to be encouraged, or we're gathered together to be troubled, really. It's okay to be troubled when we're together and to share these things. But we always have an eye to being sent out to be that faith in action. And I think the challenge here then is how we perceive church and what's important to us, but what we as individuals bring in it as well. Perception, reality. Profession, and practice. I just kind of want to let those words sort of sit with us today to trouble us enough, but not that we write it off or that we wallow in guilt, but that we say, God, where is this word challenging me today? Where is this truth hurting just a little bit today? What kind of action do I feel called to do? And how might I pray? Let's just reflect on that for a few moments of silence and then I will gather it up. God, I confess for myself and perhaps for others in the room um, that it's too easy to slip off to simply feeling guilty or shame or to go to a yeah, but. But Lord, we ask that this word would come and work its way into our mind and our heart and that we would not walk out of here with an easy answer, but that we would walk out with a, a desire to live more fully and live more deeply into the people we really want to be as your followers. So Spirit, I ask that you would make it clear what some of the next steps are. Maybe being even in simple communications or conversations today. Maybe even in just a different perspective in how we spend time with family or friends today. Maybe even just a little bit of a different perception of what happens when we enter back into the workplace tomorrow. Lord, I ask that you would help us to create space in our busy lives to listen to listen to you and to see where you're moving. Help us as a church, Lord, to be able to challenge each other in these areas as we gather together to worship and to learn and to be equipped and as we go out and as we are sent as missional people who make a difference in the world. Thank you, Lord, for the work you do in our lives. Thank you for the depth of your love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.